If you have your Bibles, let's turn to our passage for this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Please follow along as I read it out loud. Hear now the reading of God's word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that as we have now heard your word being publicly read, that now you would humble our hearts and open our minds and stir our affections so that we may respond appropriately to the preaching of the word. Holy Spirit, would you now do the work? Would you make the preaching of the word efficacious? Would you make it effective? Would you cause us to be changed and transformed by the authority of the word? And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to intercede on our behalf as our great high priest, that you would pray before the Father, and that the Father would take great delight in your intercessions, and that he would hear your prayers for your people to be strengthened and empowered by your word and for the spirit of God whom you and the Father sends before us would come and take place and residence in our hearts so that we would become more like you, our great Lord and Master. Lord Jesus, would you bless us now for we come under the authority of your name. Oh Lord, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season. Have you heard that phrase before? Jesus is the reason for the season. Some of you are thinking, yeah, Pastor, I've heard it before, and guess what? Wrong month. <laughs> December is now for another six months. Oh, I'm sorry. It is not the season for Jesus? Well, I didn't mean it that way. Listen, that may be our problem. It may be that too often and too many, we minimize and we do not understand the significance of Jesus in our lives so that after Christmas is over, we put everything away. We put the wreaths, we put the decorations away, we put the tree away, and Jesus. He fits inside our little box. And like that box that we store away in the attic or in the basement, Jesus is out of sight and out of mind. 
And one of the consequences that I know happens to us as followers of Jesus when we are this intentionally or maybe unintentionally absent-minded about how significant Jesus is in our lives is that it causes us to do this. We sigh. We sigh. We breathe out that breath of air that represents our sense of frustrations, our sense of failure, our sense of fear, our sense of fatigue as we live in a world that is not friendly to us. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you may be thinking to yourself, well, pastor, you're right about me. I do sigh a lot, but it's not because of what you say. It's not because I minimize the significance of Jesus, to which then I would reply saying, are you sure about that? Are you sure? We're continuing our sermon series to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've entitled this series, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. And the reason why I've entitled this series with that title is because the author of this book, King Solomon, is trying to address the issue that many of us deal with chronically as we live in a world that seems like it's no friend to us, that reality is no friend to us. How do you handle living in a world that just sucks? All throughout this book, Solomon is going to be addressing certain issues that evokes within us a sense of defeatedness, a sense of which we just go, ah, sighing, to where if our sigh could actually speak, our sigh would essentially say over and over, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, all of life is meaningless. And today, Solomon is going to address an issue that initially may seem irrelevant, may seem a little vague but in reality is very relevant and very important for us. And ironically, it has to do with this idea of the seasons, or the way I'm going to refer to it in this sermon, the times that we live in. Because in Hebrew, the word for season and for times are the exact same word. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this morning from our passage. First, I want to talk about the uncertainty of time. The uncertainty of time. Then I'm going to talk about the Lord of all time. The Lord of all time. And finally, I want to end it with... The redeeming of our time, the uncertainty of time, the Lord of all time, and finally, the redeeming of our time. First, let's jump right in, the uncertainty of time. Now, when you first read our passage, specifically the first eight verses, can we have the first eight verses up there, please? No, that's not Ecclesiastes. Okay, there we go, okay. The first eight verses of Ecclesiastes, when you first read it, you can't help but to notice how beautiful it sounds, how poetic it's written. In fact, Old Testament scholars say over and over how Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 through 8 are some of the most beautiful poetic words that you find in all of ancient literature. Not just in all of the Bible, but in all of ancient literature. Scholars everywhere say, wow, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 is just so beautiful. It's so poetic. It's so moving. It's so amazingly beautiful. And because this is the case, you may be tempted to think that Solomon's state of mind as he's writing these words is something more of a calm, serene mood, as if Solomon is hidden somewhere in some beautiful cabin surrounded by beautiful nature to inspire him, having a nice cup of chamomile tea to calm his nerves as he's writing these beautiful words. But if that's what you're thinking, let me quickly shake you out of that by simply saying, wrong. Solomon is not in this pleasant state of mind as he's writing these inspiring words of poetic beauty. No, quite the opposite. Solomon is freaking out. Solomon is filled with dread. Solomon is scared out of his mind as he's writing these verses from 1 through 8. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're like, what? (laughs) 
Because when I read verses 1 through 8, Pastor, I don't get any sense. I don't pick up any hint that Solomon is scared, that he's uncertain of himself, that he's uncertain about the world that we live in. Where are you getting this idea that Solomon is freaking out, that he's so scared? Well, let me show you, okay? Try not to focus on any singular verse in verses 1 through 8. Try not to focus on that. Instead, I want you to zoom out for a moment. And I want you to take a look at 1 through 8 as a whole, okay? Have the whole picture in mind. And let me ask you, as you peruse and skim through verses 1 through 8, do you notice a pattern emerging? Do you see a certain dynamic coming out of the text as you read these verses? Do you not see this kind of back and forth that Solomon is talking about between good times and bad times? Do you see this back and forth happening? For example, he starts off in verse 2 saying there's a time to be born. But then immediately after he says then there's a time to die. Then there's a time to be planted. Then there's a time to be plucked up. Then in verse 3, there's a time to kill. And then there's a time to heal. Then there's a time to break down. Then there's a time to build up. Verse 4, there's a time to weep. And then there's a time to laugh. And on and on and on it goes. There is this back and forth between what he calls good and evil. Right? Good times and bad times. Solomon as he's observing life, seems to see the world as if there's this never-ending battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil to where sometimes in life, the forces of good is winning in your life to when you have good times. Sometimes there are moments in your life where you feel like evil forces are at work in your life to where then you experience evil times, atrocious times, a time to weep, a time to cast away stones, a time to be bitter and miserable. And because he notices this back and forth dynamic as he looks at the world, he says what he does in verse 1. What does he say in verse 1? Let's read it again. He says what? For everything there is a season. What does he mean by that? For everything there is a season. Well, let me try and explain it by explaining it this way. Here in New York City, in terms of weather, we only have four seasons, right? Fall, winter, spring, and summer. Those are the four seasons that we have every time we live here, which means these seasons cycle through every year and they recycle every following year afterwards. In terms of life, however, Solomon says, there are only two seasons. There's good seasons where babies are born, people are laughing, relationships are healthy, but then there are also bad seasons. There are seasons where children die, where relationships are broken, where people are mourning. And just like the four seasons of the weather, it seems, according to Solomon, that these two seasons of life cycle back and forth all throughout your life. Now, if what Solomon is observing is actually true, what does that imply? Does that not imply that it is pointless to ever hope and to ever wish for just good things to happen to you? Isn't it kind of implying that it's pointless and fuel to wish that your life would always be good, just like it is pointless to always wish that the weather would always be like the fall? As sure as the cold, bitter winds of winter are coming your way, Solomon seems to be saying, be assured of this, the cold, bitter sufferings of life are also coming your way, and there is nothing that you or I or anyone else can do about it. Nothing. If you land a job in your dreams where you're so happy, you're so successful, you eventually have to face the bitterness of being replaced by someone younger and better than you, and you have to retire. If you end up having the bliss of having a child that you bring out of your body or whom you create with your wife, you have to eventually face the bitterness of having to say goodbye to this child when they're grown up and say they no longer need you. 
When you experience the joy of marrying the love of your life, you eventually have to face the bitterness of having to say goodbye to them, either because the marriage has failed or their life has failed. They're dead. With all the wonderful goodness that this life gives us, it also gives us some of the most bitterest sorrows as well. One of the most powerful scenes in a movie that captures what Solomon is saying here is the movie The Twin Towers. No, not The Twin Towers. Excuse me. The Two Towers. Right? Part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the second one. For those of you who have not seen The Two Towers, it's basically an epic story between the forces of good battling against the forces of evil. Right? And two of these good guys, Aragon, who was a mighty, valiant warrior, and Adawan, a beautiful princess elf, are madly in love with one another. However, Adawan's father, Lord Elrond, is not pleased with his daughter being in love with Aragon, and he basically says, break it off. Call it off. You cannot be with Aragon. Right? Why? Because she, he hates Aragon? He thinks he's not good enough for his daughter? No. He simply says, we are in a battle right now. We are in a constant battle against evil that's been raging on for thousands of years. We are battling. Who's the evil villain in the sorrow? The evil villain. This is not the time to be in love. This is not the time to wish for happily ever after. You cannot maintain this relationship. You need to forsake Aragon. Of course, the daughter, like every daughter does, when a father is scolding her, says, No, I'm not going to do it, Dad, because I love my man and he loves me. And this love, it can endure through this dark time because we have faith that after this darkness is over, there will come a time of light, a time of goodness, where we can finally settle, we can finally experience and enjoy the bliss of this love. There's a time coming, Father, where I have hope that this love can finally be consummated. To which her father responds with these very sobering words. He says this, If Aragon survives this war, you will still be pardoned. If Sauron is defeated and Aragon made king and all that you hope for comes true, you will still have to taste the bitterness of mortality. Whether by the sword or the slow decay of time, Aragon will die. And there will be no comfort for you, no comfort to ease the pain of his passing. He will come to death, an image of the splendor of the kings of men in glory undimmed before the breaking of the world. But you, my daughter, you will linger on in darkness and in doubt. As nightfall and winter that comes without a star, here you will dwell, bound to your grief, under the fading trees, until all the world is changed and the long years of your life are utterly spent. As soon as Adawan hears these heart-wrenching but honest words from her father, she finally decides to forsake Aragon. Because as much as she loves this man, she also believes, in accordance to her father's words, that it's a hopeless love. And that hopelessness is exactly what Solomon is trying to convey to us in verses 1 through 8 as he observes this world that we live in. You see, Solomon noticed that as much as there are wonderful moments in this world, as much as there are wonderful people in this world that you deeply cherish and love, Solomon cannot shake the fact that there is evil constantly threatening these moments, threatening these loved ones to where he is constantly haunted at the thinking. Is this going to eventually be gone? Is this going to be taken away from me? Am I going to lose these moments? And Am I going to lose these people? And as a result, Solomon can do nothing but go, (sighs) he sighs. Vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless. And maybe, just maybe, that is why many of you are sighing like him. You turn on the news and you look at the presidential candidates that we have running for president 
and you think to yourself, is this country in danger? You go on Facebook and you see atrocious videos of cops killing people, people killing cops. And you think, is this society that I'm raising my family in safe? You look at the economy and you see how it's affecting your job and you wonder, am I still going to be able to provide food on the table and a roof over my children's heads? And speaking of our kids, you read the latest newsletters that their school is sending you and they're telling you, hey, we're going to culturally educate your children in light of the shifting views of gender identity and sexual values. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, are my children in danger? Everywhere we look, it just seems that there is this never-ending battle against forces that threaten our livelihood and our loved ones to where we can't help but to think, is this how it's always going to be? Are we always going to go through these moments of good times and bad times, the good times and then more bad times? Is life really a vicious cycle of good and evil forever battling out to where we will never get rid of those evil moments or worse Is it like the way Chinese philosophers tell us that reality is yin and yang to where you need evil in order to have good? Listen to how one Chinese philosopher, Zhang Zhu, puts it. He says this, life and death are one, right and wrong are the same. Is this how life is? Is this reality? If it is, then reality sucks. Life is meaningless. Why? Because it gives you no courage to keep going when evil times come. Because even if you survive this round, you know there's another round of evil coming your way. Which means when the good times come, you can never really enjoy it. Because you know, shadowing these moments of celebration, shadowing these moments of joy, is the inevitable outcome of evil coming back once again to knock on your door. You see, Solomon is trying to capture, in his own words... One of the biggest reasons why you and I sigh all the time. He's trying to figure out the meaning of history. The meaning of history. What do I mean by that, the meaning of history? Let me read to you a quote from a theologian named Hendrikus Burkhoff. I think he explains it well. Excuse me. Quote, Our generation is strangled with fear. Fear for man, for his future, and for the direction which we are driven against our will and desire. And out of this comes a cry for illumination concerning the meaning of the existence of mankind and concerning the goal to which we are directed. It is a cry for an answer to the age-old question of the meaning of history. In other words, trying to figure out the meaning of history is basically trying to figure out the goal of reality. Where is our reality going? Is it going in a certain direction? Is it going in a direction of permanent joy, permanent peace, where evil no longer exists? Or is history, reality, just going in circles, back and forth, good and bad, good and bad, forever and ever, ad infinitum? Which one is it, Solomon? Well, to consider what he says next, let's go to our next point, the Lord of all time. Let's skip down in our passage and read verse 14 again, where Solomon writes this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. Here we read Solomon in a very different tone. He's much more positive. He's much more happier. He's much more hopeful. Something happened between verse 8 to verse 14 to where all of a sudden this uncertainty and fear about the future is gone. What happened, Solomon? Where is this optimism coming, Solomon? Why all of a sudden do you feel so confident and secure? Well, we just read it in verse 14. Solomon became aware. He perceived that what God does, what? Endures forever. 
to where nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away. In other words, he understands that God is so powerful, he is so sovereign that what God has done cannot be undermined, it cannot be sabotaged, it cannot be reversed, it cannot be ruined by anything or anyone in this created realm. That's what it's saying. In fact, he goes on to say that God is so powerful, God is so sovereign, that even things that God has not yet done yet are as good as done. Listen to what he says in verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be, what? Already has been. God is so powerful, he is so sovereign that no force in this reality can thwart his plans to where it can undermine or sabotage what he is going to do or what he has already done, which means what? It means history is not yin and yang. It's not going in this vicious cycle between good and bad, good and bad, forever and ever. No, history is going in one direction. It's going in the direction of God's plan, his agenda, his goal, which therefore begs the question, what is the plan of God? What is God's plan in history? What is God's plan in this reality? 1 Peter chapter 1 reads this. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which loses their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. God had one singular plan before the creation of the world. And what was that plan? To save people from their sins by saving people from the power of Satan. Let me say that one more time. God's singular plan before the foundation of the world was to save sinners from their sins by saving them from the power of Satan. And God executed this plan flawlessly when he became a man, Jesus Christ, and fully paid the ransom of your debt and my debt, of my sins and your sins, by suffering the wrath of God on the cross. As your savior substitute. That is what the gospel teaches us. Which means what? It means, according to the Bible, history is the battleground. Not between good versus evil. It is the battleground between God versus evil. History is the battleground. Not between good versus evil, but God versus evil. And according to scripture, God has defeated evil definitively. Conquered him. Permanently. On the cross. In fact, God defeated through the cross evil in such a way that it actually humiliates evil because it used the evil that was directed against God in such a way to where by doing so, God defeated evil. Listen to what Anthony Hokuma, a theologian, says. He says this, God is king and acts in history to bring history to a divinely directed goal. God is in control of history. This does not mean that he manipulates men as if they were puppets. Man's freedom to make his own decisions and his responsibility for those decisions are at all times maintained. But it does mean that God overrules even the evil deeds of men so as to make them serve his purpose. The supreme illustration of God's sovereign control over history is, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Though unquestionably the most wicked deed in history, even this terrible crime was completely under God's control. The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. 
In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod and Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Acts chapter 4. Precisely because God's control, the most accursed deed in history, becomes the heart of God's redemptive plan and the supreme source of blessing to mankind. As the author of Psalm 76 puts it, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. God has defeated evil definitively on the cross by forgiving you of your sins, past, present, and future. Do you realize that Satan really has no power over you? The only power he has is by using God's power against you. How does Satan use God's power against you? By pointing out to God all of your sins, right? Satan is the accuser. He points out your sins to God. God, look at this. He sinned. She sinned. Look at what he did to her. Look at what she did to him. Look at what they did when no one was watching. God, you are obligated by your holiness to punish them, right? That's exactly what Satan does. What is God going to do? He's a just God. He must fulfill holiness. How does he maintain justice and still love us? By taking the accusatory power of Satan away from him. By what? Forgiving all our sins, past, present, future. Where he, Satan, no longer has any warrant, any justification in saying that God must punish us because Jesus paid for all of our sins. He covered it all and he defeated Satan. Now, it's at this point, some of you are probably wondering something. You're wondering, Pastor, if what you're saying is true, if, if, if God really defeated evil, right? And if what you're saying is true, that Jesus conquered Satan. Why do I still feel like he terrorizes me and my family by going through these harsh times that we go through sometimes? Why is it that I still go through these moments of defeat? If what you're saying is true is that Christ won the victory for me, why do I still go through these times of sorrow, of bitterness, of death? Solomon answers that for us in verse 11 in a very beautifully phrased statement. He says this, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. Isn't that beautiful? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to put eternity in your heart, in my heart? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Home is where the heart is. You've heard that phrase before? Home is where the heart is. Our hearts yearn for that place where all of our loved ones are safe. We yearn for that place where we can celebrate all those important milestones with our loved ones. We yearn for that place where there is no evil, there is no danger. We all yearn for home. And Solomon says our home is eternity. It's the place where there is no past, present, and future. There is no time, which means there is no history in eternity. Why is there no history? Because there's no battleground. He defeated Satan. Evil is forever gone. You don't maintain a ring once the fight is over. The cosmic octagon has been deconstructed, so to speak. The cosmic boxing ring has been broken down. It is over. The battle has already been won. But here's the thing, Christian. We're not yet in eternity. We're still in history. We're still in time. Even though God defeated evil on the cross definitively, that defeat hasn't been fully realized, which means there's still some time left on the clock. The round isn't completely over. 
oh yes, the death blow has been hit to where everyone knows the fight is really over, even though it's not technically over, it's over. You ever watch an MMA fight or if you watch boxing and you see the dude just boom, and everyone knows, oh, he's done. Right? Even though the round isn't done, it's like he's done. The champion has obviously revealed himself. Even though the fight isn't officially over, it is really over. Listen again to what Anthony Hokema says. He says this, here we see the ambiguity of history. History does not reveal a simple triumph of good over evil, not a total victory of good over evil. Evil and good continue to exist side by side. Conflict between the two continues until the present age. But since Christ has won the victory, the ultimate outcome of the conflict is never in doubt. The enemy, Satan, is fighting a losing battle. Let me try to illustrate this with maybe an illustration that may be personal to a lot of our sisters here. Let's imagine a woman is pregnant. She's in her third trimester. And let's say that this woman, all throughout her life, she just dreamed and fantasized about being a mom her whole life. Some of them are like, what? Does such a woman exist? Yes, let's just say for this illustration purpose, let's say there's a girl out there who all throughout her life wanted to be pregnant. And behold, she's pregnant. She's third trimester, ready to burst. Let me ask you this question. Is that pregnant woman, is she a mom? Is she? Well, yes and no, right? She's already a mom, but she's not yet a mom. I mean, she's already a mom because there is a baby living inside her that's her child. So technically, she is a mom, but she's not yet a mom in the sense that she cannot fully experience the joys that she's looking forward to as a mom. She can't, you know, breastfeed the baby. She can't dress the baby in these beautiful clothes. She can't take the baby out for beautiful walks and show off to everybody. The mom has not yet fully realized the joys and the bliss of motherhood. For the pregnant woman, there is this already not yet tension. And you know, Scripture says that same tension exists for the Christian living in history now. We already have victory over evil because Jesus on the cross won real victory for us. But that full victory hasn't been fully experienced yet. It's coming, definitely coming, but it hasn't fully happened yet. We are living in this already not yet tension, but just like the pregnant woman is eventually going to be joyful and happy when her baby is born, so also will we followers of Jesus eventually be joyful and happy when Jesus comes back and eradicates history and ushers in eternity. Where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16, starting in verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. But your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is, brought, is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Joy is coming. Happiness, permanent happiness is coming for you, Christian. Which means what? You can rejoice now. You can have hope now. Even in the most darkest and bitterest moments that this life will throw at you. Even when the season of goodness is over and the season of sorrow begins. Even in those dark moments you can say, I have hope. I have peace. I know joy is coming because eternity is coming with my Savior. Now some of you aren't really satisfied with that yet, right? You hear that, oh, that sounds good. 
but it's not really good enough, Pastor. I mean, can, you, can I ask you this one question, Pastor? Why can't God just end history now? Why can't he just start eternity? What's the holdup? I mean, because we're still here, and we still have to go through dark moments. We do have to go through seasons of life that are just so painful and sorrowful. Why is he delaying? Why can't he just go through with it? The answer leads me to my next point, the redeeming of our time. Let's read again the last statement of verse 15, where Solomon says this, God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. You know, Old Testament scholars are very confused about what exactly Solomon is saying here because the Hebrew is not very clear. But if you consider that last question that I just proposed in my last statement just now, that last point, I think it makes a lot of sense. God, why are you delaying eternity? Why isn't history ending now? Why can't you hurry up and bring forever happiness, forever joy? Solomon responds, because God is still seeking what has been driven away. What is he seeking? What has been driven away from God? If you had to summarize the message of the Bible, perhaps one of the best summaries of the Bible, the whole Bible, goes like this. God is seeking lost sinners. God is seeking lost sinners. And why does he seek lost sinners? Because he loves lost sinners. All of you in here who are Christian, all of you at one point, you were lost sinners. But you now know what you are now in Christ? You're saved sinners. That's what you are. Let me ask you, what if Jesus came before you transitioned from being a lost sinner to a saved sinner? What if Jesus decided, you know what, let's go ahead and just do it right now. Let's not wait any longer, right? It just happened to be the day before in which you were supposed to be a saved sinner. It would suck to be you, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be happy. Like, oh, couldn't you wait just one more day, Jesus? But thank God he doesn't do that because he knows all those who he is going to bring with him as he ushers in eternity. People like you. People like others who are yet to be born. What's the delay, Jesus? Why are you not hurrying it up? Why aren't you bringing history to an end and ushering eternity? Second Peter tells us, chapter 3, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. God is going to end history, and he will usher in eternity. He just wants to make sure all those he has destined to be part of that eternity gets in eternity. Including your non-Christian parents, including your non-Christian spouse, including your future non-Christian children or grandchildren whom you're going to deeply love. And if you're here investigating Christianity, he is seeking after you. He is seeking after you because he loves you and he wants you to be free of this history that makes you sigh so much. God is still seeking what has been driven away. And here's the thing, Christian. He has called you and I to help out in this search party. He has commissioned you and I to be part of this work 
of seeking those who are destined to be with you and me in eternity. Listen to again to what he says in verses 12 to 13. Solomon writes, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Christian, until the coming of Christ where he brings eternity, you have two responsibilities. You know what they are? According to verse 12 and 13, be joyful, do good. Be joyful, do good. First, be joyful. Why? Because you know that even in darkest moments, when good times come, they are appetizers. They are sneak previews of what is definitely coming for you. So rejoice. When you work hard and wonderful things come out of it to where you can eat and drink and celebrate, celebrate it honestly because you know it's not going to just fade away because another cycle of evil is going to destroy it, taking it away from you. No, you know that it's simply a foretaste of what is going to come permanently and be yours. Be joyful. And when you are joyful, you therefore then can do the next thing. Do good. Toil, as he says in verse 13. Do good. Do good in season, out of season. Do good when life is bad, life is good, life is horrible, life is wonderful. Be a good worker, be a good mother, be a good spouse. So that when those around you who are sighing all the time because they think history is just going in this vicious cycle that never ends, they can see your joy, they can see your toil and say, what is it about you? You live in this same world that I do and yet you are not overwhelmed with sighing like me, what is keeping you from sighing? You know what you say? Jesus. Jesus is the reason for this season. Jesus is the reason why history is not going in this futile cycle of good and evil. Jesus is the reason why history is going to eternity. See, when you live out your faith by being joyful, doing good in light of what Jesus has done, being the Lord of all time, then you become the person who fills your mission in the redeeming of your time that you have left in history. You become a blessing. You don't become a complainer whining about how much your life sucks. You become a person who actually is an agent of hope and a source of blessing to those, especially who have no hope but can have hope if you show them through your joy, through your work, the one who inspires you to be joyful, the one who inspires you to work so faithfully, Jesus Christ. He is the reason for this season. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at the world around us and as we get so discouraged, as, we, as we're filled with uncertainty, as we think about all the things that it just seems is piling up against us and our loved ones, against our livelihoods, against those whom we feel so worried over, God, would you help us to remember that you are the Lord of history, that history is not a vicious cycle, it's not yin and yang to where evil needs to exist in order for good to exist. Father, help us to know that history is going in the direction of victory because you, Jesus, have already won the victory for us. Would you help us to cling to that promise, especially in these hard times when we see everything around us seemingly falling apart to where we can't even envision anything good at least anything good that has any permanence, any stable hope. Lord, help us to see that you are good. Help us to see that you are faithful so that we can live out our call as being joyful and being faithful in the work that you've given us, which is to be a blessing to the world. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to